Let's, um, let's draw near to God in prayer again before we approach his word. Lord, we thank you for your presence with us. And Father, we want to bring before you members of our church and congregation who have been suffering over the last number of weeks with COVID. Father, you know each one of them by name. You know the situations that are happening. Lord, we pray that you would draw close to them and lay your healing hand upon them. Father, we pray for protection as a congregation as we continue to gather together in person to worship you. Father, we thank you for the, the ability to be able to do so. But Lord, we pray for those as well that do not feel comfortable to come out to worship physically with us. We thank you that they're able to engage from the comfort of their own home. We thank you for the blessings of technology. We thank you for the expertise that you have blessed our church with. Lord, we, we ask that we would move into uh, a season as a church where it's no longer about one person at the front, but about being that priesthood of all believers. Thank you for the gifts that you've bestowed upon each one of us. Lord, thank you for each person in our church that serves in so many different ways. Father, we are so blessed here in Sandy Hills. And Lord, we thank you that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And Lord, we look to serve you as a congregation. Moving forward, Lord, would you help us keep the gospel and the pursuit of your presence at the front and foremost of our hearts and minds. Father, we pray for our world. We bring it before you. Lord, whatever we look, there seems to be unrest and such uncertainty. Lord, thank you this morning we gather before the one and in the presence of the one who is sure and steadfast. King Jesus, we thank you for giving your heart, your life for us. And in response and return, we offer our hearts to you. So continue with us as we read your word, as we sit under the preaching of your word, Lord. Father, we looked and strive to be a church that doesn't just hear your word, but does it as well. So Lord, give us hearts and uh, that are open, minds that are understanding. Lord, give us ears to hear you. For we ask these things in your precious name. Amen. We're going to read this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, and we're continuing to think about what is church, and this, this morning we're thinking about the body of Christ. So we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, um, and if you don't have your Bible with you, the words will appear on the screens before you. Let's listen to God's word together. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measures of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. There are times um, as someone who reads God's word and, and looks to preach it, that actually you really, um, you really feel the, the weight of the responsibility that God has, has, has called you to. And, and, and that, is, that is the case this morning, because these are some really um, full verses. Um, there's a lot in them. We could spend probably a year unpacking uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and still have probably just not even scratched the surface of the depth of truth that is within it. But there are, there are times, though, when, when you're prepping and when you're preparing for a Sunday that you, you really do begin to wrestle with the text. And you come to a point where actually you, it's important that you put down your own um, set of beliefs and allow the Word of God to be what directs you, guides you, and shapes you. And that's what you look to preach. So there's two things that often happens when someone preaches. One would be the eisegete. They read into the passage. They would take some of their own own understandings and they would read the text and they would look to make it fit around with their own set of beliefs and you've got exegesis which is when someone reads the passage and they just expound what God has said through his word and that was one thing that I had to do this morning this this week when I was prepping especially when we get to verse 11 where it talks about the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and the teachers that actually my own set of beliefs are really challenged this this week and this Sunday, I'm in a different place to where I was last Sunday, which is actually what we want to happen when we engage with God's word, that actually it transforms us and we don't look to make it fit around what we want it to say. So all that said, you're probably wondering what in the world is Norman going to be preaching on this morning? So why don't we just get into our passage this morning? I love the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. It is such a rich text. I know that many of our congregation have been engaging with it in a house group. And you will be all the more blessed by doing so because it's such a wonderful, wonderful letter that Paul has written. 
But the end of chapter 3 ends with what we would call a doxology. And basically what that is, is it's declaring how mighty God is and to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. It ends with this doxology that it looks to give God glory. And then really what happens in the rest of Ephesians in a very simplistic way is that, that Paul looks to unpack actually in each area of our life we are to render glory to God. Practically how this works he goes on to explain in the last chapters through 4 to 6. There's some very uh, specific areas that we see. The first is the church, which is what we're engaging with this morning. He then engages later on uh, about marriage, about husbands and wives. He then engages about families, about children and parents. And then he engages with the workplace about masters and bond servants. And actually in each area of our life that actually we are to give God glory in and through it because he deserves the glory. Paul begins by saying that following Jesus has actually led me to be imprisoned. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Actually him living out his, um, his faith has led him to be in chains. But he's not saying it because he wants the, the, the church in Ephesus to feel sorry for him or to say, oh, poor Paul, look how amazing he is. But actually, he is showing how worthy it is to follow Jesus. Actually, how worthy Jesus is of our pursuit, even if it leads us to being imprisoned for it, that Jesus is worthy of it. Because he goes on to talk about, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy, even if it leads you to being in chains. You have to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Effectively, what Paul is saying is that even though I'm in chains, I look to live my life in a way that is worthy for Jesus because he's worth it. And I'm not asking for sympathy because God can be trusted. And why is that? Because what does he say at the end of verse 1? This calling to which you have been called. Paul knew that God has a plan and God had a plan for his life and God has a plan for my life and for your life. And God having a plan should give us comfort that actually knowing that he is in control should spur us on then to walk in a manner that is worthy to that calling that we have been called towards. God knows what he is doing. And that gives us comfort as his people. We are to know the one who knows. We are to know the one who knows. We're not to know everything that's going on because that's impossible. Because if we did, we would then be God. But we are called to trust and to know the one who knows all and is above all. Paul here is writing to them about the calling that the gospel places on their life. We've spoken about this last week about living out and bearing the fruit of our repentance. That actually to be a follower of Jesus actually changes the direction that we walk and we are now new creations. And what does this look like? He's talking about this manner that is worthy and he unpacks what that worthy manner looks like in the, the, the verses that follow after. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience Bearing with one another in love. 
he names four particular aspects. All four of these are relational qualities. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. You see, the life worthy of its calling is to be lived within a fellowship. It is to be lived within the body of Christ. It is to be lived within the community of the church. We cannot live our life in a manner that is worthy if we're off just doing our own thing. It is to be part of something that is much bigger than ourselves. It is to be part of Jesus' own body, the body of Christ. I've said it before, we are saved, yes, as individuals, but we're saved into a community. We're saved into a body. We are engrafted into a family through the spirit of adoption. And thus, our life needs to be lived within God's people. That is easier said than done. That is easier said than done. What is it Jesus prays in that high priestly prayer? May they be one as you and I are one. And it's so important to note that before Paul even begins to engage in the specific gifts that we have been given and, and what makes us unique and individuals as believers, he begins and he ends with his call to unity within the body of Christ. There are the two bookends at the beginning of verse 1 and at the end of, kind of verse 16-ish as well. There's these two bookends about we are part of something that's much bigger than just us, but actually we all have a part to play. We can't get lost in a sea of faces. If we're, live to, if we're to live together, worship together, these four virtues that Paul mentions here are, are their key. Humility, which we better translated as, as lowliness. That understanding that Christ came to serve. To humble ourselves and serve our brothers and sisters. Rather than looking to see what can I get from this, we should be asking, what can I give to this? How can I serve in this? That is very countercultural. That isn't the way our world works anymore. But it's the calling on the gospel to be a people of humility, a people who serve one another well. Gentleness or, or meekness would be another way you could render that word. Our attitude towards one another, it is important, it counts. Patience. Well, because people annoy us, and they just do. And that is what it is part, anyone who is part of a family knows that people just annoy us. It can be your mother, it can be your father, your son, your brother, your sister, your auntie, sometimes even your next door neighbor's granny, but they can annoy you. But the call is to be patient. And, and do you know what's incredible about this word, this word patience? And actually, I pray as I tell you this, that it begins to change something within you. This word patience that's used here is, is used elsewhere in, in relation to God's attitude towards us. I thank the Lord that he didn't deal with me how I deal with other people. Because he's slow to anger and he's abounding in love. And then we have this kind of forbearance, this forbearance, um, bearing with one another in love. Because Paul knows that people annoy one another, bearing 
with one another in love. Not just loving each other when things are good and easy. But that sense of, you know, love never fails. Persisting with one another in love despite our faults, despite our failings, despite our disputes. If only the church practiced this more, that we bared with one another in love. Maybe we would see more of the answer to Jesus' prayer about, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. So he's spoken about this sense and importance of unity, and it is key. If, if we forget this, we miss the rest of what Paul goes on to say. And then he really begins to unpack in verses 3 onwards about what the church is. What is the church? I wonder if you, when you were younger, do you remember that wee analogy that this is the church, here is the steeple, open the door, and there's the people. Hands up if you ever saw that as a kid. I remember, I used to love doing that because I got to wiggle my fingers in church. How wrong that is. And actually, it, it, it has shaped so many of our understanding of what church is. This is the church. And, it, and then somehow the people are different to that. See, the church isn't a building that we gather in. That is the church. The people you and I, we are the church, the body of Christ. It's not about a building. And that's why over the last 18 months when we weren't even in this building, we were still Sandy Hills Parish Church. Because no building that is made can contain our God. The church is God's ambassadors. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is where God's message of reconciliation is entrusted to. The church is where God's name is worshipped. The church is where uh, the, that, uh, being a house of prayer and worship for the nations. The church is you. If you're in Christ this morning, you are the church. The church is God's people, his bride. The church is Jesus' hands and feet, his body. And this is the binding truth of unity that we see within verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We aren't united because we have the same interests. We aren't united because of our giftings or because of our gender or age. Do you know, actually... You can always tell when a church is out for a coffee or lunch because they shouldn't be together. You look at them and there's just such a different range of people. And actually, what amazes me is that our connection, it isn't surface level. It goes so much deeper than that. It is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Our unity is made possible because of the cross of Christ and it is effective through the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, we cannot create unity ourselves. It's not something we can cultivate. It is something that is given to us by God through that bond of peace, through the power and the outworking of his Holy Spirit. That said, though, we have a job to do because we are given the task of protecting it, maintaining it, keeping it, and guarding it, working at it. 
And how do we do those things? Well, it's through the humility, through the gentleness, through the patience, through the forbearance in love that we maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That bond of peace, that that peace that we have with God because we've been reconciled to him because of what Jesus Christ has done on behalf of us. Are you eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in our fellowship? Because if you are, we have to work at it. We have to love one another more. We have to have more humility Be more gentle with each other. And be more patient. Why? Because people annoy us. And that's just part of being church. And then Paul furthers this thought of unity. By by giving us this image. And thankfully he doesn't use that age old analogy of the hands of the church. And opening the door with the steeple. But he gives us this image of a body. There is one body, he says in verse 4, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And again, we see the, the importance of how Jesus is the only way within this. There is not many roads up one mountain. There is only one way to be saved, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul makes that clear. It is fundamental to the unity of his people the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He uses this image of being one with this one body. And and, and Paul's original readers of this letter in the church would would have had many differences. There have been many things that would have um, been different for them. One of the big ones would have been some of them were Jews and some of them were Gentiles. But Paul is basically saying here, regardless of your background, now that you are in Christ, and that's the important point here, being in Christ. We talked about that last week and what that means to be in Christ. There is one body, one spirit that has brought life, that is empowering you to live as a new creation. You see, friends, the cross is the great leveler of mankind. Doesn't matter where you come from, what you've done, what language you speak, how much money you have in the bank, the cross is the great leveler because we all fall short of it. But thanks be to Jesus that through the cross there is a way to life. And what unites us, and this is Paul's point, what unites us as the body of Christ far outweighs anything. That could ever separate us. Because what unites us is the blood of Jesus Christ. And each one of us in Christ. And again the important point about this is being in Christ. Has equal shares in the gift of grace. There is no such thing as a two tier Christianity. Each one of us has equal shares in the gift of grace. Because to be in Christ means to be his body. And although there are many different denominations, and although there are different churches, and many of them meeting this morning, even in our own city, there is only one body. It's the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we love churches. That's why we pray for churches. 
And by churches, I mean the gathering of God's people in different geographical areas. Even how sometimes they're different styles to us. We're part of the same body, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. If they, they are in Christ, they preach a gospel of repentance that is ours through faith alone, through Christ alone. What unites us far outweighs or what divides us, whether we use a big tank of water or a wee bit of water on someone's head, whether we lift our hands in worship or whether we don't, whether we have a choir or whether we have a praise band. It is important to be in Christ. And that's why in Reformed theology, we hold, uphold something called the doctrine of the invisible church. Because it's about being a member of the body of Jesus Christ, not about being a member of a visible denomination or a visible organization. Being a member in the Church of Scotland has never saved anyone. It's about being a member of the body of Jesus Christ. Paul starts with unity. And it's so important we see that. Like I said, it's the two book ends. But there's diversity in our unity. Each one of us made with different gifts, different talents, different skill sets, different interests. And then we have in verse 7 this incredible verse. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let's unpack verse 7 a little bit because it's a really important verse within the context of the verses we've read this morning. Grace here means the ability to perform the task that God has called us to. The ability to perform the task that God has called us to. So God enables who to perform that task. Paul doesn't say an elite you know, group of Christians who have been to Bible college and they've, you know, they've got a degree in divinity or whatever. That's not what he says. He says, to each one of us, to the body of Christ. That is you this morning, if you are in Christ. To you, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. That God has given you the ability to perform the giftings that he has bestowed upon you for his glory. If you are in Christ this morning, you are a spiritually gifted person. Because the Holy Spirit has made you a new creation. So this is about all of us. Not just one or two, but all of us. That understanding of being a priesthood of all believers. Then where does Paul go with this argument? Well, verses 8 through to 10. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Effectively, what the, the bits and brackets in verses 9 and 10 is saying, there's a wee bit of dispute. Some people you know, talk about Jesus is, uh, you know, descending into the, the, the depths of hell here. Uh, others would say that actually it's talking about you know, him um, putting aside his glory and, and coming down to the earth. Uh, and then what 
where that argument would go is about, you know, filling all things, that, that both earth and heaven is now, you know, is aware of his presence, that the presence of Jesus is no longer just contained to heaven, but actually in his incarnation, in his death and resurrection, and in his ascension, we now see his glory and his presence here in the earth as well. But here Paul pulls in verse 8 on Psalm 68. And in this psalm, that's where he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. What, he, what is going on in Psalm 68 is we have this picture of God marching out before his people in Israel, um, of Israel, sorry, after the exodus. And he's leading them out triumphantly. And in this psalm, it talks about God leading men and receiving gifts from them. But here Paul, interestingly, changes a word from receiving gifts to giving gifts. And what he does, what he's showing us is actually in Jesus' ascension, in his um, heavenly coronation as the King of kings and Lord of lords, he bestows on his church gifts. He bestows on his church these graces. And what are the graces given? Well, here we have where I've been wrestling with this week in verse 11. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Elsewhere, Paul gives um, lists of gifts that God has given um, to his church. But here Paul lists five gifted persons that God gives to his church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, I, I, I ask that you, you stay with me as I try and um, verbally process my, uh, my studies this week um, and ask for grace as, as I mumble through them, and I hope you understand where I'm coming from and where I'm going with it. Like I said, I wrestled with this verse because I, I, I always had the understanding that, that, that here is not speaking uh, about offices, but actually about functions. That, that is talking not about kind of offices, but about the giftings of these, um, the, these offices. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. But actually, as I journeyed through this, uh, this text and worked with it, I've come to the understanding that it, it is, Paul here is actually speaking about offices. The office of apostle, the office of prophet, the office of evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. Now, this is what would be understood as apest. And basically, it takes the first letter of each of them, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and you put it together and you have the fivefold ministry and you have something called apest. A lot of people argue this is about functions, and about how Paul is just speaking about the giftings of these roles. But actually, within the text, I don't think that, that we don't see that. He is talking about the roles themselves. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? I would argue then that these five, um, these five offices are split in two. You have two that were for the apostolic age at the birth of the church in apostles and prophets. And then you have three that are still present and active within the church today. Evangelists, shepherds and teachers. Now I'm talking about offices here. And what does that mean? Well, in the New Testament, we see a group of people called apostles. And how did they become an apostle? They had to see the risen Lord. So you've got Paul and Peter and, and, and Co. You've got 
the, the, the disciples plus a few others that had witnessed and seen Jesus. And you also have the group of people called the prophets as well. Now, hopefully it's going to come on your screen. There's a wee verse earlier on in Ephesians 2 where it talks about that the apostles and the prophets, that they built the foundation. They laid the foundation. And now we have Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So the apostles and the prophets, they laid foundational truths for us as the church. And actually... These are teachings that we cannot disagree with. These are teachings that we, we, we cannot deny. The, 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 the importance of the cross, the importance of Jesus' death and resurrection. Basically, what we would say is the Bible, the, the, the God-breathed, inspired, infallible word of God. These are the foundations that have been laid for us to stand on and build on. And then the other three offices that we still have today of evangelists, shepherds, and teachers... So that is, you know, groups that people are called into that actually they are there to carefully teach people about the foundations. They're there to guide people as the shepherds or pastors and they're to lead people to it as evangelists. Evangelists are those who share the gospel. Billy Graham would be a prime example of that. Not all are called to be Billy Graham. Shepherds or pastors are, are those who would lead local congregations. Not all are called into that ministry. And then you have teachers, those that, that expound and teach the word of God as well. Not all are called to do that. I came across this really helpful quote. The apostle as an order. So that's like Paul and Peter and co. Of the ministry of the church were not perpetuated beyond the apostolic age. But hear this. But the various functions they discharged did not lapse with their departure, but continue to be performed by others. So although in the text it's speaking about offices here, we're not saying that the gift of prophecy no longer takes place and happens. Just because the office of prophet is no longer in, within the New Testament definition of what I meant to be a prophet is no longer the case. The gift of prophecy is still alive and breathing within the church because the functionality of that office is still at work. Paul tells us elsewhere, and this is important, that we use scripture to interpret scripture. Paul elsewhere tells us to desire the gift of prophecy, to see it used within the church. He lists it as one of the gifts that God gives to his people. And with that helpful distinction that actually, that just because the office of prophet, those who lay foundational truths is no longer here, the gift of prophecy is still at work. But here's the difference. The weight that that office carries is no longer the same. Because every prophetic word we hear, we should line it up with scripture. What does that say? You know, does it agree with scripture? Is scripture, can scripture um, agree with this word that has been given? Because if it isn't, we have to discard it. Because it's not from the Lord. Apostles were sent to plant churches. People are still going and planting churches. It still happens today. But the weight of those laying a foundational truth is no longer the case. First Corinthians tells us that, that no one else will lay a foundational truth. People may still serve in similar ways, 
but it's different to being an apostle or a prophet in the New Testament. We have the inspired and fallible word of God that we preach and that we stand upon. And this is why, like I said, when we hear a prophetic word spoken, we have to hold it up to Scripture. Because if it isn't biblical, it's not from the Lord. Remember when I said I was struggling with this? The reason I struggled was I felt Paul in verse 7 was speaking about everyone. Each one of us has a gift. And then he goes on and he speaks about these specific people. And it just, it just jarred. It just couldn't make it fit. But that's because I was seeing these ministries of, and these offices as oppressive things, which they are not. This isn't an oppressive thing, but it's an edifying thing. It's about building up the church. It's about enabling those who God has given gifts to you to be able to use them for God's glory so your faith can be built up. It's like where Paul would go on later and speak about husband and wives. That so often sits really uncomfortably with us because what do you mean Paul says that wives have to submit to their husbands? That seems like, you know, the wife has to, you know, she's underneath the husband and, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's oppressing her. But the next part of that is Paul calls the husband to love his wife like Christ loved the church. He gave his life for her. It's a call to sacrificially loving. And actually what you have when it's done biblically is you have the wife who submits to the husband and looks to build her husband up. You have the husband who loves his wife sacrificially like Jesus loved his church and gave his life for her. And actually he then builds her up. So what you have is this mutual edification and the constant building up of one another, which is what we see Paul speak about here is I've given, Jesus has given you gifts as the people of God, but he's also given you people within these offices to see you grow in your faith. It's not an oppressive thing, but it should be creating a space for you to flourish and to use the God-given gifts that Jesus has given you as a spiritual gifted person. So healthy leadership should always create a space for the people of God to use their gifts for God. Those gifts we see elsewhere, and time is marching on this morning, so please bear with me, I'll be two minutes. Those gifts we see elsewhere, about faith, the gift of faith or, or prophecy, or the gift of service, the gift of teaching, the gift of generosity, encouragement, healing, tongues, the gift of interpretation, hospitality, whatever that gift that God has given you, It is so important that you use it and that you are built up by the graces he has given in the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers and in the foundational truths that the apostles and the prophets have laid. Why? Because this is what maturity in the church looks like. What's the aim as individuals? And using the gifts that God has given us. Verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is what biblical maturity and discipleship looks like. When church leadership creates a space for the people of God to use their gifts for God. It isn't about a two-tier Christianity, but about each one of us using the gifts that God has bestowed upon us for his glory in our congregation and in our fellowship. See, the fullness of Christ is what we should be aiming for. The body of Christ should look like the person of Christ. 
Do we resemble Jesus in this place? When we grow in our faith, we no longer be tossed about with every wind of doctrine. This is why Paul began these verses with saying the importance of unity. Because some of us and some of the readers maybe have already forgotten about unity and are thinking, well, how can I do X, Y, and Z? How can I use my giftings? That's not the point. And Paul returns back to being part of a body with Christ being the head. You see, this is so beautiful. Church should be a place where Christians work together to, so that there's mutual growth and maturity. What does this look like? Growing up into Christ while we speak truth in love. And you have a vital part to play. I asked for your help a few weeks ago. You have a vital part to play in the growth of Sandy Hills Parish Church because you're a spiritually gifted person. When each part is working, growth happens. Maturity, unity of faith, knowledge of Jesus and becoming more like Christ. And just to say in closing, the goal is not individual accomplishment or growth, but the growth of the body of Christ and seeing him lifted high in this place. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we have been on a wee journey this morning. And Lord, I confess that I'm simply a man. And Father, anything that has been said or done that is not in accordance with your word or your purposes, Father, I ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that it would just fall away and fade away and it wouldn't lead any of us in the wrong direction. Lord, we thank you for your word and the foundational truths that the apostles and the prophets laid. And Father, in this place, we want to create a space for the people of God to use their gifts for God, for God's glory. We want to do that in unity. Not thinking that some of us are important and some of us aren't. Lord, each one of us has the same shares in the gift of grace. Help us to love one another well in this place, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys and thank you for your...